Hi, this is Scott Thompson. Welcome to the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Thanks for listening. Tell your friends. Feel free to subscribe. Coming up on today's show, more restrictions are on the way. The Premier will make a further announcement on this Monday at 1 o'clock. China once again is showing how it is infiltrating systems around the world. How will the rest of us respond? And the Boeing 737 MAX 8 could soon return to the skies of Canada as design changes are approved. When will we see it in the sky? It is all coming up on the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. I'm sure you heard my mom is freaking out because the dog has turned the lights off her Christmas tree. By the way, it's fake. I'm fine with it, though. It makes stopping and scooping in the backyard that much easier on a dark afternoon. Let's go! It's the Scott Thompson Home Show. Here's Scott Thompson! Hey, this 900 CHML. I'm Scott Thompson. Will Weber back at the station keeping the Scott Thompson Home Show on the air as we wind up week number 40. Uh, let's go right now to Travis Danraj, Queen's Park Bureau Chief uh, for Global News, and find out exactly what we can expect or what he knows about what's coming up a little later on. Travis, thanks for the time. I hope you're doing well. Hey, Scott. Yeah, I'm doing great. How about you? Uh, not too bad, but everybody, you know, keeps banging on my door here at the house. Uh, well, the family, are we, are, we calling, are we closing down, Dad? Are we locking down? What are we doing? So what do you know, Travis, about what's uh, going on with this meeting and what might be said later on today? Listen, what I can say with with certainty is that there will be further restrictions. What form that comes in, whether that or not that means, uh, you know, an extension of what we have seen now or other regions put into lockdown um, is yet to be determined. Because as you mentioned off the top, the Premier is having this emergency meeting with hospital CEOs at 1 o'clock uh, this afternoon. They're all going to be on the phone with him. And I found out from the Premier's office it's a pretty big call uh, they're expecting 100 to 150 people on this call, so a lot of input that the Premier, the Health Minister, and Ontario's Chief Medical Officer, Dr. David Williams, will be getting from the CEOs. Uh, and then they're going to go into Cabinet. That goes from two to four, and then we are likely to see the announcement in terms of what further restrictions there are. There are reports out there that there could be a full lockdown in southern Ontario until the new year, until January, mid-January or so. Um, that it, We have not confirmed that. Certainly that is likely something that they are considering, but the final determination won't be made until Cabinet meets, and then we're going to find out pretty late in the day here what's going to be happening over the next couple of weeks in so- Ontario. So uh, thanks for correcting me here, Travis. So uh, he hasn't met with those health officials yet, or he is meeting with them in the morning uh, this morning, and then uh, earlier this morning, and then uh, we'll meet with or, or have a chat with many of them at one p.m. Is that accurate? Yeah. So 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 at one o'clock this afternoon, he's having a teleconference uh, with these leaders from the hospitals, and then right after that. That's going to take about an hour or so. Right after that, then Cabinet is going to meet virtually, and they will make a determination and just confirm uh, restrictions. And then we are going to see some sort of release. We're not sure if we're going to hear directly from the Premier in a news conference, but you know, likely this is just going to come in a news release uh, in terms of what's happening. We know the hospital's position on this. We saw yesterday Anthony Dale the CEO, uh, the head of the Ontario Hospital Association, say, listen, if we don't impose further restrictions right now, um, we will be in a very precarious situation 
uh, in the new year because we could see that holiday spike. And it is at the point where we could see the hospital system break down. He said, you know, yesterday when I interviewed him, that we're at a breaking point here when it comes to the healthcare system. So further action needs to be taken. It needs to be taken immediately. On the school aspect of things, whether or not we're going to see in-class learning uh, in 2021, uh, you know, will the kids have an extended break or is the thing going to be transitioning to virtual? Um, we don't know that, and I don't expect an announcement on that today. So uh, when do you expect to hear from the Premier then? So we're going to hear, there's, there's kind of a, you know, just kind of media jargon here, a pool camera. So that means one uh, camera that will then send out, you know, that those comments to all the right. different networks. Um, so there's a pool camera that is going to be in the uh, the meeting room that Dr. Williams and the health minister and the premier are at. He's going to make, the premier, Doug Ford, is going to make some brief comments to that pool camera. We will again get, get that. And then that meeting uh, that phone call with the hospital CEOs is going to be private. Uh, and then the cabinet meeting, as it always is, is in private. And then we're expecting 4.30-ish or so, some sort of correspondence from the premier's office uh, and Queen's Park in terms of what's going to be happening. And any word, and, and I know you're just speculating here, Travis, but uh, many are wondering if this is probably confined to the to the the lockdown areas or the red zone, or whether this will affect the province. Well, a lot of the CEOs are saying that it needs to be province wide, uh, because there there needs to be kind of a, these blanket restrictions. Because as we as we know from uh, previous lockdowns. Uh, in the GTA, people move from one region to another. Yeah. You know, if the holiday shopping is shut down in Toronto, they'll go to the the next region over, um, and and that's really been the challenge for the government right now is curving people's behavior uh, and, and trying to get them to understand you can't do that. So what we may see is that we might not see you know it province wide, but certainly large swaths of the province, southern Ontario, possibly where the large population centers are some kind of blanket restrictions in the southern Ontario region. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Lots to talk about. Charles Burton, associate professor at Brock University as well, uh, specializing in China, former uh, counselor at the uh, Canadian Embassy to China. And Charles Burton is with us now. Charles, thank you for the time. I hope you're doing well. Good afternoon, Scott. Looking beautiful here in St. Catharines. Yeah, nice sunny day, that's for sure. Uh, A lot of things on the table today with uh, China in the headlines. Uh, Let's start with uh, the World Health Organization says that China will welcome a team to investigate uh, the origins of COVID-19. Where is this investigation going? Will we ever find out exactly what has happened here? Well, I don't think we'll find out uh, if it's the WHO that's leading the investigation because, you know, there are certainly indications that there are serious issues in in Chinese government co-optation of that uh, WHO, which, you know, led to problems at the initial phase when China knew about uh, human-to-human transmission and and attempted to uh, cover that up. So, you know, I... Uh, they're not they're not even talking about uh, necessarily going to Wuhan where this um where this thing started at least evidently started chinese are now claiming you know it came from the us uh at the time of the world military games in wuhan brought by us soldiers or maybe it came from italy but 
certainly not from China. But, you know, more seriously, if you look at it scientifically, a lot of these things, like SARS, like bird flu, like swine flu, have had their origins in Chinese agricultural practices. And I think uh, this latest pandemic has really uh, made it more and more critical that we understand the mechanisms that form these awful diseases and see what can be done to avert them in future. The Chinese government's claim that, you know, it's anti-Chinese racism and so on is nonsense. It's just the Chinese Communist Party trying to cover up for for um, messing up the, uh, the, the thing in the initial phases and then allowing uh, people who had the disease to fly abroad and spread it throughout the world. I remember talking to an epidemiologist way back when and uh, at the beginning of this pandemic and we were talking about the comparison to SARS and, and you know, she actually said how they could literally trace this back to its point of origin and the people who started this, it, to which to me was astounding and her response was, yes, isn't science great? Um, so obviously with SARS, we know exactly what happened and how this was traced back to uh, a food market. Will we learn the same thing from this outbreak? Because I remember in the early days, we saw Chinese officials hosing the place down. And then all of a sudden, the speculation started that it was, you know, not surrounding this wet food market. Well, I mean, there are other speculations like there was a a lab nearby that does research uh, near near that uh, market in Wuhan that does research on on uh, coronavirus and you know it's there's speculation there might be a leak. I, my guess is that the Chinese government knows exactly how this occurred and are suppressing the information. But I hope that it will eventually come to light because you know this is serious business. Millions of people are being infected with this disease. Huge numbers are dying. This is no time for playing politics. It's time to to allow the scientists to go in and do their work. Um, we I've had this discussion with you several times. I've had it with other experts several times talking about the origin uh, of this. And often after those conversations, I get an email or two from people that say, this is crap and we should not be spreading this. What do we know and how do you address those people who all of a sudden this isn't clear anymore? Well, I think that it's part of the disinformation campaign, you know, that that the Chinese authorities provide information of different possibilities. And, uh, you know, the bottom line is that the Chinese certainly identify that wet market in Wuhan as having been an important source, and that market is still not opened. And as you say, they they sprayed it down. We also know that, that at the early phases, doctors in Wuhan among themselves were raising the the concern that there was a new SARS starting to spread and that the Chinese government suppressed that information from getting out. And we also know that they knew about person-to-person transmission and were hiding it. So, you know, all of these things are pretty clear. And I don't, you know, it's it's really, a, it's a matter of looking into it in a scientific and objective way and obviously it's not just the Chinese government that made mistakes in the way they handled this this virus and and the kind of preparations that were made in case of such a thing. I mean, we had problems in Canada and they've had huge problems in the United States where the you know, where the where the political authorities have, have mismanaged the matter. We didn't have enough uh, PPE. We we didn't uh, you know we didn't have the bureaucratic structures to get the information globally. We didn't uh, 
you know, we didn't have the the uh, medicines necessary, and we don't have um, and we didn't have proper um, control of of those uh, homes for the elderly, where so many have tragically died due to um, you know things that could have been avoided. So I mean, there's lots of there's lots of areas of blame to go around. I don't think it's really a question of individualizing it and condemning people. It's really a question of finding out what went wrong and doing our best to ensure it doesn't happen again. Boy, that is well said. My goodness, I echo that. Um, so where do you think this investigation with the World Health Organization is going to go? Will any answers come of this? My guess is not. Uh, you know, I think that we really need a neutral investigation. I think the Chinese will go through the motions, and then when the international community starts to demand, uh, starts to ask more questions based on, on what we get out of the WHO, they'll say, well, look, the investigation's been done. Uh, you know, it's over, um, uh, go away, in effect. So, you know, I, I am concerned that this could be a sham exercise. And the Chinese also allow, you know, some international inspection of their um, concentration camps in, in northwestern China where they're holding, you know, possibly as many as 2 million Turkic Muslims, um, you know, and, and but these things don't allow the truth to come out or the real the real information to be given there. They're they're taken around and and uh, shown a, a sham tour, and in the end they say, oh look, you know, they went there and, and there's nothing the matter, so the ma- so the matter's closed. Don't ask us anymore to to give you information about it. You said a neutral investigation. You don't think the World Health Organization would be a uh, a neutral investigation, or has the Chinese Communist Party infiltrated that as well? I think that you know we have strong indications that there are severe conflicts of interest and that that China has infiltrated a number of UN agencies, so I would prefer to to see uh, an international consortium that is not simply uh, uh, determined by the WHO. I think there are problems there, and, and, you know, and the U.S. has withdrawn from it for those reasons. Uh, speaking of infiltrating, uh, now a story breaking about a, a, a Chinese company that is involved with visa applications, the process of visa applications of people coming to this country. What can you tell us about that? Well, I mean, this is a massive thing. There's an enormous company that, that does outsourcing of visa applying for many countries, including Canada. And it turns out that information has come to light and revealed to Globe and Mail that this multilateral enormous company i think technically based out of dubai um has significant uh people's republic of china state investment so you know we know that the the chinese government love to get hold of massive amounts of personal data to process they've you know they've purloined data from canada they got a huge amount of personal data from the united states government um through computer hacking this would be a bonanza for them because you get entire family trees and probably more personal data than any single country holds through this company. So the question is, you know, is it a good idea for Canada to be outsourcing um, the handling of very sensitive information about people who uh, will be coming to Canada as immigrants to um, a Chinese company when we don't have confidence and trust in the Chinese Communist Party's um, capacity to to act in a in a way that preserves personal privacy from from their state intelligence network. 
We've talked again at length with you and other experts about how it appears that the Chinese Communist Party has their prongs in a lot of different things in Canada, whether it's the educational system, military, uh, security, uh, medical, what have you. Can we can we reverse this? I mean, now we're talking about visa applicants. I, I mean, is is it just too deeply rooted now in Canadian North American culture to remove? I think that is a very valid concern, and particularly in the United States, because there's so much vested interests involved. You, you know, universities now are highly dependent on the high student fees paid for by students from the People's Republic of China, and the Chinese government has made it clear that if you don't, you know, behave in ways which the Chinese government uh, approves of, that you could lose your students, that they simply won't process uh, exit for students going to universities that would say, I don't know, invite representatives of the Dalai Lama to give a talk about the situation in Tibet. So, you know, we're we're kind of um, in a very difficult situation where institutions are dependent on Chinese money, and, um, and uh, the Chinese then use that to leverage over political concerns. And this amounts to business, and, you know, so many um, former Canadian policymakers who end up in retirement, um, in lucrative China-related board memberships or business deals, I think the being a sort of the reward for having not uh, done things that the Chinese government wouldn't like when they were in positions of trust. So we really need much more transparency about this, because I think if you know sunshine is the best disinfectant, and if people are aware that that Canadians are receiving benefits from a foreign state that they will be sufficiently embarrassed that maybe they won't do that anymore. You know, you hope that that uh, people at least have enough pride that they would not want to be seen as, as acting on behalf of a foreign state against the interests of our country, Canada. Where do you see this going, Charles? Because, again, during the Trump presidency, there was a lot of uneasiness. Uh, nobody knew who was leading the world. It, it now certainly seems that the chatter around China has certainly changed. We're certainly seeing people look at it a different way than just, oh, you know, the golden goose. People are, are more aware of, of, of the Chinese Communist Party, per se, and, in, and its influence over business there. But, but where do you see this going, considering it is already interwoven? woven its way and and people in in powerful situations have lots at stake there and it's their fortunes that are on the line where's this going that, that, that's the thing i mean public opinion you know people like us have a have a notion that engaging with china is not a good thing for canada on the whole and the public opinion polls really reflect that you know you're down to sort of single figures of support for enhancing engagement with china to promote our canadian prosperity and you know 90 percent more I think that's not a good idea, whereas the government and the, and the economic elite continue to be beholden to, to the attraction of Chinese, um, Chinese money and the ability to do business with them. So what we really need, I think, but, but then, you know, we're now looking at a situation that's really coming back to bite us, you know, the hostage diplomacy of Kovrigan's favor, the, the arbitrary um, violation of $3 billion worth of canola seed contracts to pressure us on Meng Wanzhou, you know, all of these things are, are, I think, tipping the balance away from China. And from that point of view, we really have to get together with like-minded allies and come up with mechanisms to try and defend the rules-based international order and diplomacy and trade. And Joe Biden says that's something that he sees as a priority to unite with the allies to, 
to try and get China to comply with the accepted norms of of diplomacy and trade, and hopefully Canada and and uh, our allies in Europe and Australia and New Zealand will uh, will agree to to work together in concert to ensure that that China cannot get you know cannot destroy the international system through its uh, coercive power politics. Uh, and, and as you rightly mentioned, we can't have these conversations without mentioning uh, the two Michaels, uh, the, the Prime Minister doing his rounds with his end-of-year discussions with the various networks and, and such, and has said that uh, you know he feels positive in the new year about the two Michaels uh, and their release. Is that just optimism with a clean year ahead, or is there, is there some sort of message there? I, I'm skeptical. I mean, the government says they've been working very hard behind the scenes. So when you're getting up to 735 days of incarceration with no evident progress, I can't be too optimistic. And the government tries to put a good face on it by saying that the two men are doing very well in prison and that they have great resilience. I'm not sure if that is entirely factual either. I think that the prime minister is trying to put a good face on it so that it won't become an issue in an upcoming election in the spring. But unless there's information that he has that we don't know, I'm not seeing any sign of them getting out. And I think the Chinese government sees hostage diplomacy as serving it well and keeping the Canadian government from making a decision on Huawei 5G or Chinese state investment in uh, up, up in the north on the Northwest Passage in gold mines or you know any number of other things, uh, cracking down on Chinese state harassment of of uh, Uyghurs and Tibetans and others here in Canada or or Chinese cyber, you know, pervasive cyber espionage. We're not doing anything on any of those, and the, the reason seems to be because the government feels that it would negatively impact their negotiations with regard to Kovrigan's favor. I think our, our government policy has proven just dead wrong, and it's time for us to, to rethink how we address the Chinese regime and should be much more proactive in challenging them rather than hoping if we treat them nicely that they'll show us some goodwill and do the right thing and release our two men and we've certainly seen that through the uh, huawei cfo case but e- even another case of of, F- of espionage that was in the news uh this week that again we have to treat uh, this case with kid gloves because we're worried about the retaliation i mean is this any way to go through uh building our country no i mean i don't think it's the canadian way to to be uh you know so timid and and trying to hide the reality, I think we ought to be absolutely straightforward and say, this is what it is. And, you know, we're not happy with you holding these people, and and we think you should be accountable for these other things you're doing instead of trying to pretend that, that, you know, nothing here, uh, uh, keep moving on and hoping that somehow or other Chinese will release Kovrigan's favor and Ms. Meng will be returned to Beijing and then the uh, political and economic elite can go back to trying to to improve our our trade and investment uh, relationship with China on Chinese conditions in terms of how we engage with them here in Canada and you know certainly what they want is to be able to purchase more Canadian natural resources and get more control of our infrastructure and get that Huawei technology into our telecommunications that could give them considerable geostrategic advantage and I don't think we should be allowing any of that. I heard a phrase, and, you know, again, I don't want to be sensationalizing here, but uh, I think the phrase was something, and I'm paraphrasing here, uh, winning World War III without ever firing a shot. Is that accurate? 
I think so. I mean, you know, what we're seeing is a very sophisticated engagement, a gradual encroachment uh, into nations, and and getting um, getting economic coercion going in such a way that China is able to achieve its gradual uh, goal of well, in, in their case, by 2050, of becoming the dominant power on the planet to which everybody else is subordinate. You know, it's the Belt and Road Program and Xi Jinping's uh, Community of the Common Destiny of Mankind to replace institutions like the UN and the WTO for a more China-oriented world. I think that we're, you know, we're seeing this gradually happen, and uh, and um, we're not we're not awake enough to to recognize that we should. Uh, Try and stand up for our Canadian values and way of life, and and not see it as as just inevitable that the U.S. will will decline in the world, and that we should become compliant with the demands of an autocratic, authoritarian, one-party dictatorship like China that engages in outrageous and unfair behavior. You know, we want a world based on reciprocity, fairness, and justice, and that's not what China's uh, pr- offering. How has, and we've only got about a minute left here, Charles, how has Donald Trump factored into all of this in the last four years, and what are you expecting moving forward? Well, I think that, uh, you know, Mr. Trump uh, certainly got on the Chinese case with regard to their violations of trade, and I think there's justification for those um, tariffs. But, you know, we couldn't work with him because we don't trust him, and he's not honest. But the situation with Mr. Biden may be very different, and we might be quite happy to collaborate together to try and uh, turn this thing around. Charles Burton is with us, former counselor at the Canadian Embassy to China. Charles, as always, thank you so much for the time. Great conversation. Be well. Have a good weekend. Take care. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Another fascinating uh, story uh, in in this weird wor- world of COVID-19 and the uh, opportunities that it sometimes brings. Uh, U.S. authorities on Thursday expressed an increase alar- increasing alarm about a large and sophisticated hacking campaign affecting government networks in the United States. Uh, the Cyber Supe- uh, Security Union of uh, Security Unit of uh, the Department of Homeland Security has warned that uh, the hack poses a grave risk to the federal government and state, local, uh, tribal and territorial governments, as well as critical infrastructure entities and other private sector organizations. To talk more about all of this, John Vunderlich is with us, a privacy and security expert with John Vunderlich and Associates and on the line now. John, thank you for the time. I hope you're doing well. I, I am, well, Scott. I hope you are as well. Yes, we're all trying here to get through this as uh, as best we can. You know, it, it's interesting this during times of a pandemic and global crisis, it's often represents opportunities for others as focus is paid uh, on other areas. What can you tell us about this hack uh, into the Department of uh, Homeland Security and, and, and what this means for the U.S. and the rest of the world? Well, it turns out to be pretty interesting. Uh, news came out yesterday that it wasn't just this uh, solar winds there was also another supplier that was also uh, involved in this so it looks like whoever's responsible for this was using multiple tools and multiple routes to infect thousands and thousands of computer networks and out of that according to one report they only chose to exploit 40 of those networks some of them the entity the government entities that you mentioned and some other high-profile entities, but all 18,000 of the companies who use the SolarWinds software 
were vulnerable to this. So this says it's a very targeted attack. It also says that the uh, the other 18,000, almost 18,000 that aren't being exploited are st- may still be vulnerable to things that got left behind. So uh, you, you say that this is targeted from where? I've heard that, that Russia is, is on this list. Do we know, from, do we know anything about or, uh, where this all originated from? Uh, well, one, one has to be careful about attribution. It's, um, it's certainly easy to point the fingers at your enemies, but if you're a uh, global superpower, you have lots of enemies, and your enemies may be just as interested in you blaming someone else, so they'll attack you and blame someone else. So right now the reports are that it's a uh, uh, that it tends they think that it's a state-sponsored Russian attack. I would hold uh, hold my judgment on that, but that's that's what's being reported. There are multiple parties that would be interested in the set of entities that uh, that got hacked. Uh, we certainly hear of this going on uh, or being an ongoing situation. It's not certainly new to to where we are now. Uh, is there anything out of the ordinary uh, about this attack? I think that uh, it, it's it's fair to say uh, calling it a nation sta- state attack, which is often done, so that people can or uh, targets can say, oh, it was sophisticated, uh, there's nothing we could do. The, to... In this case, it does seem likely that given the sophisticated and sophistication and persistence, that it is a nation-state actor or something, or an actor with that kind of capabilities that's behind this. So that um, that is some consolation, although the tools that they're using are tools or attack techniques that your average to above average criminal syndicate or criminal in the basement may also use. So we're all we're all vulnerable. What can we learn from that and and from the the methods that they are using? Couple of couple of takeaways. Uh, if you think about this as um, a supply chain attack, which is to say that the attack happened upstream of where the uh, problem was if you think of this if i'm going to if i'm an architect or a contractor building a government building i'm going to contract with a vendor to put in my my building monitoring systems uh we you know how's my hvac doing how's my elevator how's my air supply water so forth and so on so the attack wasn't at the contractor building the government building the attack was at uh, on the person who was supplying the monitoring software for the building. This is the exact same as this. So what we have here is farther down in the supply chain, somebody intervened where it was probably easy for them to intervene and then reap the benefits downstream from that. So what this says is that our, and security experts have been saying this for a long time, we have to do a much better job on making sure not just that we trust our vendors, but that we trust the suppliers to the vendors and that there's a way to validate and verify. And that's going to add cost and time and difficulty to building computer systems and, uh, and other systems that we depend on, including things that are responsible for power generation or nuclear generation or pick your movie nightmare scenario for disaster. How concerned are you about the agencies that were hacked? I mean, these are pretty. This is pretty critical infrastructure. Yeah, well, I'm 
deeply concerned, and thank goodness they appear to have uh, attacked the United States, uh, our close ally, and, and not Canada. But doesn't mean we're not equally vulnerable to the to the same thing as the uh, Canadian cybersecurity uh, agency put out an alert on the on the same one. What concerns me is not the approximate hack because they've released patches and they're fixing that. But once the uh, once the bad actors got access to the system, they could have deposited other logical or digital time bombs or backdoors that, to be activated at a later date. So even if you, oh, somebody got into the barn and they've uh, they've they've tagged the barn, I can get rid of the tagging, I can close the door, but I don't know what else they left in the barn, hmm. and uh, it's not clear that uh, that's going to be. Uh, something we're ever going to be determined completely ever it, it seems over the last four years with what's been happening with the leadership in the united states that uh that nobody it seems that the world is a free-for-all and nobody is really concerned about what the other side is doing now that we have a change in administration are we going to see more of the allies unite on this sort of thing and and at least put you know build some sort of united front on this I don't think that ever stopped happening uh, at the level below uh, where the uh, where the real work gets done by the directors mm-hmm. and and the staff uh, of the Five Eyes agencies or or the equivalent alliances. I think the people that are uh, keeping the hands on the systems are have been working with their allies uh, throughout this. So uh, I, I think that um, that surface uh, confusion. Uh, was not replicated a couple of steps down the uh, pyramid where the uh, where the bureaucrats and the technical people are struggling to uh, to, to to make uh, make these systems work. What this might do is get more budget in business or other organizations to uh, to build security right because security is usually regarded as a cost center that to be minimized and it. Uh, you know, if you do your job right as a security person, nothing happens. And then, then you have to go, well, nothing happened. Why am I paying you? <laughs> <laughs> exactly, yeah. That's like, with, that's, like, that's like with the COVID-19 restrictions. We have all these restrictions, yet we don't seem to be curbing anything. So does that mean we yeah. should stop? Uh, <laughs> I hear you. I hear you. What can we learn from these sorts of attacks? What can we learn from this attack? I think there's, there, there's two things. Um, one is that we need to... Uh, invest more in verification, uh, and uh, I guess it would uh, the old adage trust but verify. So if I'm going to buy uh, software, I don't care how reputable or disreputable the company is. If I'm the government and this is going to be critical infrastructure, I have a responsibility to inspect the software, to do my due diligence, and actually test it, and not just take your word for it that it's secure. Um, GCHQ, just uh, for example, was doing stuff like that with uh, Huawei. This is uh, whether it was Huawei or Cisco Gear or uh, or or uh, the Finnish company that names escaped me. There's only Ericsson, Nokia. Yeah, those two. Uh, sorry, uh, brain brain brain. I hear you on the interview. Uh, but any one of those forks supplies similar equipment doesn't matter whether they're an ally, your own country, someone else, some engineer could be compromised, uh, some system could be getting from a bad supplier. What's up to us as the 
as Canadians, whether we're business or government, when we're buying that gear, if it's critical gear, we have to develop better capabilities to test and verify that it actually is what it says to be. Uh, that being said, uh, where does, in your opinion, does this leave 5G? Uh, it certainly looks like the major telecoms in Canada have already gone and, and just made the decision not to use this without the government actually making a call on it. W- what are your thoughts on the future of this, in of the Huawei 5G in Canada? Well, I think that's a political discussion. I've, uh, full disclosure, I've, I've, I've been on both, uh, in, in, in various roles, I've been on both the Huawei campus in Shenzhen and the uh, Cisco campus in, in Santa Fe. So the engineers are equally capable, the businesses are equally uh, determined on gaining market share. And if you build systemic backdoors into software that gets distributed globally, they will be found. So I don't think any of those kind of, uh, companies are interested in building systemic backdoors uh, I think the uh, the real vulnerability depends on testing and verification, and the decision about the purchase uh, then becomes a matter of uh, political and other considerations that are out of my area of expertise. What about Huawei's uh, relationship with China and, and it being uh, controlled by the state and such? Does that concern you at all? So I put myself as a Canadian and a neutral party, and I say, well, if I look at um, uh, Cisco, and I'm not picking on Cisco, I think they're a great company, but I, I say, well, what are the relationships? Uh, can the, the can the chairman of Cisco call up the White House and talk to the White House, and vice versa? Are there uh, is there large military contracts held by Cisco? Are there a lot of military engineering and other veterans at Cisco? And like any big big corporation in the United States, or are their board of directors interconnected? The answer will be yes. So structurally, in many ways, it's the same thing. The difference is, of course, the U.S. is an ally of Canada, and we have a, uh, a much uh, better better uh, trust relationship there. So uh, I'm not overly worried. I think you have to do your due diligence wherever you get your gear. As as we come through this pandemic, how has this exposed these vulnerabilities? Is it is it business as usual, or have things increased during this global pandemic? I think the uh, the pandemic and the increase of work at home and work remote has uh, increased the threat surface. There's a larger number of vulnerabilities. Uh, companies have been forced to allow people to work from home. So now uh, access to secure information might be going through channels that uh, haven't been vetted or trusted as much as they might have been before. So it's it's increased the uh, the, the ways in which information can be sought after or, or which information can be leaked. So and that's, in that sense, that's nothing new for a security person. But what COVID has done here, as it has done elsewhere, is it's sort of increased the pace of history and got us to a place where we needed to be faster than we wanted to be and probably less prepared than we wanted to be. As you mentioned earlier, um, a security person can do a great job and nothing happens, and then people are wondering why they're paying the security person to do anything. Um, you know, it's almost like buying insurance. Uh, how much money do we spend on this sort of thing? Uh, is that the balance? Is that the challenge for for leaders? You know, I mean, it was the same thing about PPEs before the pandemic. We didn't really feel that there was a need for them. Uh, where, where does this leave the discussion? 
Well, I think that uh, leaders and investments and investors work in a broader cultural and political and security environment. This has raised the awareness of the consequences of not doing certain things. So allowances will be made for larger security budgets and and for, for, for other things uh, in, in the security and information protection domain uh, uh, in terms of it all for for corporations and for business uh, and for uh, governments it becomes a risk management exercise and when you do risk management you say what are the benefits what are the costs what are the potential consequences so this uh, puts better numbers and better proportionality on that so it'll change the risk management equation in some companies and more forward-thinking companies or companies that have higher levels of risk uh, are likely to see the ability to have greater investment in security. John Wunderlich has been with us, uh, privacy and security expert with John Wunderlich and Associates. John, thank you so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. Thank you. You too. Take care, Scott. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. We certainly know how this pandemic has affected air travel and everything associated with it uh, over the course of of the last uh, 10 months or so. Uh, and you might remember prior to that, uh, a couple of terrible accidents involving uh, the Boeing 737 uh, MAX 8 jets, uh, which inevitably ended up in them being grounded until uh, safety corrections could be made. It looks like now Transport Canada uh, is on its way to approving this plane. On Thursday, it said it had, it had approved the design changes of the new MAX 8 and uh, obviously grounded for uh, nearly two years as a result of those two accidents. Accidents. In a press release, the regulator said it completed an independent review of the design changes and has validated them. What that means, let's ask Keith Mackey, aviation expert with Mackey International and is with us now. Keith, thanks for the time. I hope you're doing well. I'm doing well, Scott, and yourself. I'm doing well, thanks, considering. Uh, let me ask you something um, just in, in regard to this pandemic and such. We certainly remember talking with you uh, when this tragedy all happened and then when these planes were eventually grounded and, and many of us were stunned to see literally parking lots of, of jets and such that would have been uh, grounded. How has the pandemic uh, factored into all of this? Has it made it more complicated? Has it kept planes down when uh, uh, there hasn't been demand? How has the, the, the pandemic factored into this investigation and where this plane is at? Well, it's been a major factor, of course. Uh, the Boeing is estimating that it'll take three years for the airline industry to recover. And, of course, many of the airlines that are flying currently are flying with very low load factors, you can't uh, make money flying an airplane with half the seats empty. So it's, it's a real problem, and it's going to take some time to recover. Now, at the time the MAX was grounded, if you recall, they were very much in demand. Uh, airlines wanted them immediately, and it was a real problem because they lost a great deal of their capacity, and at that time they could sell seats very easily. So... The fact that the airline's coming back, the airplane is coming back online now, will probably be somewhat beneficial for Boeing and for the airlines because they can bring the airplane back into service gradually. They don't have to put them all on immediately. They don't have the demand for it anyway. The public can get used to the MAX being available. They'll have the opportunity to fly on it or not to fly on it. 
the airplanes have quite a bit to go through before they can actually return to service. Of course, many of them have been grounded for such a long period of time, and they'll require relatively extensive maintenance. Many of the items that have to be maintained are done on a calendar basis, and many of those will have expired. Other things will have to be modified to uh, comply with the new certification standards for the MAX. Then there'll be testing involved. Apparently, most of the airlines intend to use the airplanes initially for training and uh, operational repositioning purposes so that they won't be carrying passengers as soon as they're returned. I know that Southwest doesn't plan on having them in service until probably the first or second quarter of next year. You bring up a valid point. I mean, there's been a lot of these planes sitting around parked for uh, almost two years. We know if you've got a vehicle, what that involves. Uh, you know, obviously an aircraft, uh, you know, a much more sophisticated uh, piece of machinery. I- is it just a case of going in and firing it up and, and taking off again? I mean, there, as you said, there's got to be substantial maintenance involved in getting all of these planes back up. Well, in addition to that, there's substantial modifications that have to be done. Of course, this is just a terrible mess. Boeing got a lot of the blame. The FAA got a lot of the blame. And the bottom line was they spent so much time recertifying the airplane that they discovered things that they thought should have been done in the first certification and weren't. And uh, a lot of modifications have been made to the airplane that will have to take place before they can really fly again or enter service. Now, the Canadians were very wise. The Canadians didn't rely on the FAA and the and Boeing to get the job done. They're imposing their own certification standards, which, in effect, are a little more stringent than what the U.S. is going to do. I believe there's going to be more training that takes place. Cockpit procedures are going to be modified. One of the things they're going to do is they're going to provide a means to cut out uh, alarms that are going off in error. That was a problem in several of these, a uh, couple of these uh, incidents here. What had happened was that the airplane would actually be going very fast. It would get an overspeed warning, an oral warning. At the same time, it was getting a stall warning because of the angle mm-hmm. of the tax sensor being bad. And that was certainly confusing for the crews. So the Canadians are devising a system to eliminate those extraneous alarms, and that'll help a lot. The pilots will be also getting simulator training, which they weren't going to get. That was one of the selling points of the MAX to begin with, is that it wouldn't require airlines to train Mm. pilots specifically for the airplane. Now that's gone away, and everyone will be trained. Isn't that interesting how, because uh, I was going to ask you and, and Will later at the end of this interview, what has changed in this process moving forward? But I, you touched on Canada, so I, I want to focus there for a second. Uh, Canada has says it approves the design changes, but as you said, still has to do further testing. What does that mean? What is this process? Well, Canada's been involved with the test flights of the airplane. I know that some of them were conducted over British Columbia in the Vancouver area. And uh, to my knowledge, uh, they're, they're happy with the results, and they're just integrating their own procedures, uh, their own simulator training procedures and things that may be specific for, for Canada. I mean, Canada, well, Air Canada, WestJet, and Sunwing all operate the airplane. 
So uh, everyone's got to be brought on board and brought up to speed, and that'll just take a little while. So what has changed on this plane from prior to all of this happening? What, uh, obviously, uh, the, the, uh, the correction system, as you said, which makes the plane feel that it is in a dive, that's all been changed, but then they found other things uh, along the way. So how is the old Max 8 different from the new version? Well, let's talk about that for a second, because many of your listeners may not have known or may have forgotten what actually happened that was wrong. Yeah, go Uh, ahead. Boeing had built the 800 airplane, and Airbus was coming out with a more fuel-efficient competing airplane, which forced Boeing to quickly come up with a counterpart. And the obvious choice was the, uh, the 737. To get the fuel efficiency, they had to mount larger engines on it, which would be larger in diameter. The only problem is they wouldn't fit under the wings. Hmm. The landing gear was too short. Now, the obvious thing is to change the landing gear, but that couldn't be done either because the landing gears fold together under the wings and there wasn't room. So their solution was to move the engines further forward so they were sort of on front of the wing and they'd fit, which is what they did. But when they flew the airplane, hey, look at this. The center of thrust is now further forward, and the flight characteristics are changed a little bit. Well, that'll uh, confuse the pilots, so what we'll do is we'll design a software system, and this software system will compensate for that, and the pilots will never even know the system's in the airplane nor that it's working. And they didn't bother to tell anybody about it. It wasn't written up in any of the manuals. But the way they had the system work is it used what we call an angle of attack sensor that measures the angle that the air is passing over the airplane. But they only use one. You always use redundant systems on airplanes. So how Mm -hmm. anyone could ever, ever design this system with a single sensor that would trigger this event to push the nose down is incredible. But that's what they did. And when the system failed, the airplane sensed it was going to stall, and it pushed the nose down. Now, you could bring the wheel back and compensate for it a little bit, but as soon as you relaxed, it would push it forward again, and it would repeat it and repeat it over and over again. So the nose would just get pushed lower and lower. Now, anybody knows that's not good engineering, but that made it through the system. That got on the airplane, and that's really... What caused these two crashes? People not being familiar with how the system operates, not understanding how you could override it, which would have been very easy, but it wasn't done. So that's how we got to where we are. So in the plane itself, there's redundancy now in those systems, correct? Yes, we've got two angle of attack sensors installed. Uh, so if they have to both agree. They have to both say, yes, the airplane's about to stall. One of them doing it isn't enough. Additionally, once the nose is pushed over, it can only push it over once, and it can be easily overridden by the pilots. So all these things were things that initially should never have been on the airplane. And that was an issue way back when, was that, uh, unfortunately, these pilots didn't understand how to pull it out of this mode and, and, and correct itself. Right. The basic uh, system uh, 
we have what we call a runaway uh, stabilizer system in any of the Boeing aircraft. The stabilizer is moved electrically by a big motor, and there's a wheel in the cockpit right by the pilot's knee that turns whenever the stabilizer is moving. Mm-hmm. And if it moves and the pilot isn't commanding it to move, there are two switches right next to the wheel, and you just turn them off, and the the electronic system is defeated, and you can manually crank the stabilizer and fly it till it runs out of fuel. But people didn't seem to be familiar with this and weren't doing that, and the event progressed to the point where they lost control of the airplane. So, it, obviously, a design flaw initially in this, and then perhaps lack of training, so when this did happen, the pilots did not know how to correct it. Right. It was a combination yeah. of all of those things. Coupled with installing the, uh, in the case of the Lion Air crash, installing the angle of attack indicator improperly so that it was out of rig and not telling the pilots on the next flight that it had been out of rig and discovered and no one had a chance to fix it. So it was, it was a comedy of errors all the way through. So that's the plane itself what has changed. What has changed in the process of getting these approved since these accidents? Well, as they went through the systems, uh, somebody got poking around in there and looked at some of the wiring and says, hey, you know, these wires, I don't know if they're far enough apart. Maybe, maybe something could happen that would cause them to chafe together and cause a short circuit. And I said, yeah, I think you're right. Let's fix that. So they went through uh, a portion of the tail and put these uh, this wiring in different conduits that were separated by more distance, and they found numerous other smaller things that uh, needed to be corrected. One of the things that Boeing had done is designed a uh, sort of a warning system that would let you know when the angle of attack sensor was uh, sensing something it shouldn't, and they failed to put these warning lights on all the airplanes. They're on some of them, but they were mm. offered as an option at, at like $80,000 a piece, and I, I think now that they'll be on all the airplanes. But I'm, I'm not sure of all the details, but there are a lot of little things like that that have been corrected to get through this, uh, this process. Everybody now, has many to, cover quest- their, to cover themselves in, in getting the recertification done. Every And many were questioning how this was approved in the first place and the relation between the manufacturer and uh, and the regulator and such. What about changes there? Are, are there changes in the way these planes are approved or regulated now? Oh, oh, yes, there certainly are. I mean, Boeing passed stuff off that they knew or certainly should have known was not acceptable. And the FAA trusted Boeing to do the right thing and wasn't surveilling what was taking place well enough. So now both sides of the uh, uh, equation are modified to get it done properly. The FAA is certainly more diligent, and hopefully Boeing is now relying more on the engineers than they are on the bean counters. Uh, The management Boeing had changed over the years and where they used to have been an engineering-oriented company They'd come into a more bottom-line-oriented company, and most of those on the board of directors were there for financial reasons rather than for engineering reasons. So at the end of the day, uh, will the, are you convinced this plane is safe? Would you fly on this plane? 
I believe it's safe. Uh, I believe it was safe all along if someone understood how the system was constructed and could recognize these errors instantly, as they should have. They certainly could have corrected for it. In the case of the Ethiopian crash, they pushed the throttles up on the runway. The airplane took off and climbed, and I got all these overspeed warnings, and no one ever brought the throttles back. That thing went into the ground at full throttle. If they'd just done that, they might have had a chance to recover. So these things were all factors. Uh, When you examine this, uh, we'll call it incident, in detail, there were so many factors and so many things that needed changing and updating and revising. Hopefully they've all been done, and hopefully the industry has learned and will no longer repeat uh, situations like this. Uh, Keith, you were saying earlier when we started this conversation that uh, that airlines have said it's going to be three years for them before they get back to normal. How come so long? Because we've got vaccination on the horizon. If that's uh, all done within uh, the next year and such, won't people be eager to jump back onto a plane? Well, I'm sure vacationers will, but uh, look at business. We're doing so many things yeah. now by, by Zoom. Uh, an example, attorneys that do depositions, normally they'd fly all over the country. There'd be three of them fly into a certain city to conduct a deposition. They don't do it that way anymore. It's all done by video conferencing. So that need for transportation has been eliminated. So there's been a lot of the market that's been disturbed because people have had to find other ways of getting their work done rather than uh, fly on airlines. How do you think the airline business is going to change post-pandemic? Well, I think it's going to take a while to heal. People are going to have to become comfortable sitting next to someone they don't know for a long period of time in a confined area. And I think Mm -hmm. even when the vaccine is in place, it will take a period of time before people are comfortable with it and before you can be assured that the person sitting next to you has been vaccinated or that uh, even though you have, you might still be able to transmit the disease. Uh, so those, those factors are going to have to uh, be eliminated. People are going to have to be comfortable flying. Uh, we're going to have to slowly get the load factors up so that the airlines can, again, make money. You know, For many years, the airlines had a terrible time making any kind of money. And in recent years, with the more fuel-efficient airplanes, uh, they've done quite well, and this has all come to a screeching halt. And look at Boeing. They had like 5,000 of these things on order. And mm. uh, now, even with the airplane being back in service, airlines don't need these airplanes anymore. And if Boeing didn't deliver the airplane in a, within a year, I think, of the scheduled date, the airline could cancel the order with no penalty. Mm. So time remains to see how uh, how many orders will get canceled and how many will actually be produced. When do you think Canada will see this plane in the sky? If I had to guess, I would say by the middle of next year. Mm -hmm. I think it'll be a slow evolution. I think they'll do it in a similar way that the Americans are doing it, but they'll let the Americans go first. And if there's any hiccups there, they'll discover them before uh, before they're found in Canada. Keith Mackey has been with us, aviation expert with Mackey International. Keith, as always, thanks so much for the time. Much appreciated. Be well. You're welcome, Scott. Same to you. 
The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML. This is the Scott Thompson Podcast, available on Apple Podcast and Google Podcast or wherever you get yours. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review so you don't miss a thing. I'm Scott Thompson, and thanks for listening.